0: You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and my guest today is a novelist, memoirist, and newsman who serves now as curator of Long Island University's distinguished George Polk Journalism Awards. John Naughton joined the New York Times as a copy boy in 1966. And when he retired some 40 years later, my guest had been its city hall reporter, a foreign correspondent in Africa, for which he received the coveted Polk Award, in Poland, for which he received both a Pulitzer Prize and another Polk. And he went on from there to be the Times bureau chief in Madrid and London, its deputy foreign editor, its metropolitan editor, and its cultural news editor. In short, John Daunton is, has always been, a newsman's newsman. And perhaps one could leave it at that if my guest hadn't also written a number of well-received novels. And now, Almost a Family, a memoir, just published by Alfred A. Knopf, a most extraordinary tale Mm focused on the death and long reach of his father, Byron Daunton, a well-known New York Times war correspondent killed in New Guinea during World War II. Quite understandably, of course, most Daunton interviews I've heard and read recently have had to do with Almost a Family, his evocative memoir with its captivating jazz age motif, and so on. But today I want to ask my guest much more about that other family so central to his whole life's work. I mean, of course, the Times itself and the whole wide world of print journalism. And wonder, of course, whether he pines for it. More important, whether he thinks it's time to mourn for it. Mm -hmm. What do you think, John? Well, I think
1: it's too early to declare print is dead. Um, Everybody's do, doing it. I know. I know. But the obituaries are all. You know. I think they're they're premature. Um, look, there will always be some people who want to hold the object in their hands, take it into bed with them in the morning with a cup of coffee, and leaf through it and look at the ads at leisure and just have the the pleasure of the paper. Will they be a minority? Undoubtedly, they will. Um, I worry more about uh, regional newspapers. I'm Boston, Houston, San Francisco, uh, they may disappear. And if they don't disappear, they may become so weak-kneed that for all intents and purposes, they no longer carry out the functions of a good newspaper, which is basically investigative reporting, keeping a check on the politicians. Uh, Mike Royko said that uh, a good reporter is to a politician what a barking dog is to a chicken thief. And we're losing that all over the country as papers cut back uh, and as that kind of enterprise reporting doesn't migrate over to the web.
0: Why do you say it doesn't? You're a can't.
1: Well, because I cannot think of any exclusive stories or scoops that have taken place on the web that could come anywhere close to those in print over the last 10 years. Um, It simply uh, calls for a lot of resources, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money to pursue investigations, some of them lasting two years or longer, uh, and the web isn't into that. The web is all speed, what happened immediately now, uh, you know, razzle-dazzle, a fair amount of kind of gossip, a lot of aggregation, not, you know, uh, aggregation and uh, in In all senses of the word, it aggravates me sometimes to see these things um, and uh, it 's just not geared at the moment toward the kind of uh, shoe leather coverage that papers used to do and the times the times i 'm happy to say uh, is still excels in that. Um, you know you mentioned the the Polk award, so every year. Uh, a group of us go over about 450 submissions from newspapers, uh, TV stations, broadcasts around the country, and we call through them. And I have to say, over the last couple of years, the Times comes out uh, on top in so many categories. Uh, it's alarming, and it's not just because I'm a you know, company man that I say this. Uh, I think their level of investigative work is higher than it's ever been.
0: How do you contrast it with the times that not just surfaces, but runs through this family story? Well,
1: you know, it's a very different newspaper, clearly, than it was uh, even when I began there in 1966. Uh, There is a whole different kind of person now who goes into reporting. When I joined, there were people still there who had not been to college. Some of them were from the west side and gravitated to the Times because it was the local employer. They knew the city perfectly. They Some of them went to the track. I bet there's not a single Times reporter now who goes to the racetrack. They were really kind of, uh, you know, of, of the, the warp and woof of the city, everyday people, uh, who just happened to have a knack for... Nosing out the news, reporting, talking to people. Um, and somewhere along the line, probably after Woodward Bernstein, it became a very fashionable profession and drew a lot of people from the Ivy Leagues. And like any institution, the Times sees somebody walk in with a Harvard degree or a Yale degree, and the eyebrows rise up, and they're apt to hire them. Um, that was in the old days. Now, I think they insist that somebody start at another newspaper first and kind of, you know, prove, prove their worth there.
0: There's such an interesting point uh, here. Uh, in Almost a Family, uh, you write about your father's death. Uh, he's killed in a um, friendly fire mm-hmm. incident. And you've written about this in other places uh, uh, as well. That had never really been reported, had it?
1: No, at the time, General MacArthur released a statement and referred to the death as an accident. Uh, an accident can mean it can mean falling off a ladder. Uh, and my family, my mother, uh, was informed. Uh, re- really by other correspondents who followed up to find out what happened, that it was a case of friendly fire. It was a a plane that flew overhead. He was on a troop ship, a very small, actually a fishing trawler that had been requisitioned by the Army. And uh, this plane flew overhead. The plane couldn't identify the ship. The ship couldn't identify the plane. It took a loop and then came back and the bomb bay doors were opened. Uh, a man on board the ship fired a machine gun at it and then... Four bombs were dropped. None of them hit either that ship or a sister ship, uh, but the shrapnel flew out and killed two people, my father and, and a lieutenant who was the one at the machine gun. So uh, it was a case of friendly fire. Uh, it took a while, I think, for, uh, for it. Nobody ever really figured out what went wrong, and there was a mission report filed by the pilot that was probably lost, uh, but I was able to actually uncover the name of the pilot and to find through the internet an unpublished journal from one of these spotters on the island, these, one of these Australians with a ham radio set and binoculars who watched the whole thing. And then I went to New Guinea and went to the actual village uh, where I met an elder who saw it happen as a six-year-old boy and described what he saw. So I have a sense now of what actually happened uh, and it was one of those, you know, accidents of war.
0: And you said that you were glad that the pilot hadn't lived long enough for you to talk to him.
1: Yeah, I uh, I wondered about the pilot, as did my mother. And, and she said, uh, I remember years ago, she didn't particularly want to know who it was, but mm-hmm. if she ever did encounter him, she would want him to know that she understood that these things happened and that it was not at all his fault. Uh, he should not bear any any guilt. Um, so I managed to get his name and I found a phone number uh, in Sun City in Arizona and called uh, and there was no connection and then I called the, the the place where he was staying and learned he had died About five years before. And I was kind of glad because I don't know actually how I would have phrased the question. But I did manage to reach his son just to ask, uh, did he ever talk about this? And the son said no. In fact, he said he never talked about the war at all, uh, which was something I think a lot of soldiers did. They just didn't like to go there. And they didn't talk about it until sometimes. Uh, toward the end of their lives, and sometimes not with their children, but their grandchildren, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon.
0: Because do you think they didn't want, they couldn't relive? I think
1: so, yeah. I think it was too painful. Uh, I think, what well, you know, they, they wanted to just kind of face forward, not backward. Uh, some of them, uh, especially in the Pacific, but I imagine in Europe as well, saw horrible things. Uh, the fighting in New Guinea was just horrible. Uh, these were boys from the 32nd Division, which had acquitted itself very well in World War I. They were the first to break through the German lines. They were called les terribles by the French because of their fierce fighting spirit.
0: And your father was uh, in it.
1: And he was in it. So he knew, he knew all about war from the trenches and, uh, uh, of World War I. And he used that as a kind of lever to get to accompany the troops on, this, on, his, last, uh, on his last mission. But these poor young men from Wisconsin uh, and from Michigan uh, trained in semi-arid deserts of Australia, and then they were dropped into this jungle with uh, very little protection, uh, uniforms that weren't really even camouflaged, that had just been dyed green, uh, that didn't breathe, and subject to diseases, and insects, and animals of all kinds, and fears of headhunters, and cannibals, and. Uh, And mostly, as I talk to a lot of vets, as they describe a sense of isolation at night when you're kind of alone, you can't see uh, or even hear a soldier who's four feet away from you and a branch drops and you think uh, the Japanese are coming for you. Sounds horrendous.
0: Why did you want to look back? You talked about these Uh, men who so many of them didn't want to look back, but you did Yeah,
1: you know, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, All my life, uh, I kind of shelved the idea of of even trying to find out about my father. In fact, when I began uh, to do this book, I wrote everything I knew about him on a piece of paper and it took up half a sheet of paper. I knew virtually nothing about him. But in my mind, in my mind's eye and my imagination, I evolved a kind of myth about him, about what he must have been like. Uh, And then at a certain point, you know, I ended up going into the same profession, working for the same newspaper, wanting to go abroad the way he did, and it was pretty clear that some kind of shadow was either chasing me or I was chasing it. And toward the end of my career, uh, I thought, you know, it's about time I, I figure out who he was. Uh, and how he's influenced me. How could somebody you don't know exert such a powerful pull on your life, almost like destiny? Um, there's a, an incident I, I recount in the book when my brother and I uh, went to a christening with our mother of a, of a liberty ship that was named after him a year after he was killed. It was a big ship called the Byron-Darnton. Uh, my brother was supposed to christen it, but uh, he was, I guess, at the age of four. He, he couldn't lift up... The champagne bottle. So he asked uh, someone if he could just write his name on the little side of the ship, and he was allowed to. He pulled out a crayon and he wrote B O B, and the ship, you know, went down the ways and everything. Uh, and uh, and then it, you know, served its function on the Murmansk run, and then we heard it, you know, it ended up wrecked somewhere.
0: And you went to see the wreckage well, many years
1: later. My brother was giving a lecture and a man approached him after and said, uh, it's an unusual name, Darnton. Did you know there's a pub in Scotland named Byron Darnton? And he called me immediately. Uh, we checked it out. We figured it out immediately that was where the ship crashed. So we figured, well, we have to go there and raise a drink to the old man. And we went to this pub on an island with a population of one, the mm-hmm. pub owner. Uh, And after a round of drinks, we crossed the island, uh, my brother and I, to look at the wreckage. And it was just this kind of sad little heap of metal, you know, offshore, uh, covered by moss. Couldn't see the B.O.B. anywhere. Uh, And I looked at that and sort of felt very disappointed, saddened even. And it was kind of there that I decided, you know, I'm going to find out who he was, what he was like. Uh, why he went to war uh, at the age of 44, volunteering to cover the war as a correspondent, uh, leaving behind uh, a wife with two young children. That was the, the, those were the, the questions that began going through my brain for the first time, really.
0: An exorcism?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, people often say, uh, is it cathartic? Uh, I wish I could say Yes. Uh, but but uh, i can 't although I do know that at the end of it, at one point in particular, pulling away from this village, I felt uh, a, a kind of a, a stream of emotions i 'd never felt before, uh, including anger, which i 'd never felt before anger at the whole thing, the randomness of it the you know the fact that these lives were overturned. My mother never remarried, and she tried to carry on as if, almost as if he was still alive, and that that led her down a difficult road. Um, uh, so I I can't say that I kind of relived it in some way. There was nothing for me to relive really, but I do feel that I packed it away. Uh, it's kind of putting it now in a box uh, and put it behind me in and go on to other things, so it's in that respect very satisfying feeling.
0: I wanted to ask at one point something you had written. Um, you talked about the Times not reporting this uh, oh, official yeah. officially yeah. This, uh, yeah. this incident, and because what was the reason? Was it Ed James then at
1: the time? Yes, it was. I yeah, I went. I did some research also through the Times archives. Uh, and found uh, folders about uh, my mother who worked for the Times after his death as a a reporter in the Washington Bureau and then finally woman's editor about my father, about my brother who also put in a stint at the Times. Uh, My wife, incidentally, has also written for the Times. So we're like this, you know, the company store that we can't get away from. Um, And in my mother's folder... There was a, There were various memos, uh, many of them written by her when she was woman's editor, to Edwin L. James and Lester Markell, who was the Sunday editor. These were both driven men, tough men, not sentimentalists by any means. And she was arguing for women's news in the paper, saying it's not just food, fashions, and furnishings. Uh, it's really a question of... Uh, broadened post war interests in everything from juvenile delinquency, which was a very big topic in the you know in the early fifties if you remember I do. to legislation uh, involving uh, you know women in washington, price of food all these things um, uh, she met a stonewall and in the in the margins of her memos, James in particular would write <clears throat> this is sociology with an exclamation point well One of the uh, things I uncovered was a story that had been written back in 1946, I think, just after the war, by a member of the Washington Bureau who looked into this friendly fire incident and discovered that it was actually uh, an American plane, a B-25, that it was almost, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, there was an exchange of fire from, from the ship to the plane and vice versa, that it was an Almost a uh, he called it a battle. Well, it wasn't quite a battle, but it was certainly a you know a firefight and um And the story was never used in the paper. And I noted, I found a little note from James that said uh, to the publisher. Uh, when this whole question came up in the 1950s, there was a rumor that, in fact, it had been a Japanese plane. turned out not to be true. The publisher asked James to look into it, and he wrote and sent a copy of this story with a little note that said, we didn't print this on the grounds that it would do no good. So it was a kind of, I think, self-censorship. Because if you were just reading the newspaper of record, all you would have known for all these years... Uh, really, was it some kind of accident, and that would have been the sum total of your knowledge?
0: Because that happened again when Jack Kennedy asked that uh, the Times not print yeah. news about what became the Bay of Bay Pigs. pigs.
1: Self restraint.
0: Yeah. What do well, you think about
1: that? Uh, everyone, everyone recognizes, including Jack Kennedy, that that was a mistake. That it would have been much better if the Times had gone ahead. And printed what they what they knew. They did do a story uh, by Tad Schultz. He was the reporter who uncovered mm-hmm. it, uh, but it was a kind of truncated version and and only um, didn't name the, the the time and place where the invasion was going to take place. I can imagine the conferences that must have been held over. You know, that what do we do with this material? Do we go ahead? National security interests will be affected, et cetera. Uh, and the lesson there was things would have been much better if the Times had printed it. Um, You think that's
0: that's a rule of thumb for you?
1: No, it would depend, obviously. Yeah, I mean, all newsmen favor printing, especially if it's their story, (laughs) but um, it's not always the case. I mean, we could always cite stories where printing it was foolhardy, you know, printing the Japanese, saying the Japanese code had been broken in World War II, the Chicago Tribune foolhardy, dangerous. Uh, so there are clearly stories where you, you you know, there is a, the argument of national security will hold up. But, uh, but I think, uh, you know, you have to really go right up to that line and be convinced of it if you're going to hold back in publishing. it.
0: You think there are more times these days when that line is reached?
1: Well, you know, again, The whole profession has changed, and there's an automatic antagonism now between the press corps in Washington and the people they cover Uh, that's, uh, I think, not uh, necessarily a good development. I think it's good for them, reporters to remain skeptical, but now functionaries in Washington almost always... Uh, insist that all requests for information go through their the department's PR representatives. It's all very controlled. Uh, and when the Times comes up with something like WikiLeaks, I mean, the Times didn't come up with it but when they're confronted with it, uh, and they go they they deal with uh, State Department or at times even uh, you know with with the president, say this is what we have. We want to print it. What's your argument against it? And occasionally, if the argument is persuasive enough, uh, on WikiLeaks example, the argument that you'll actually be, uh, it'll lead to the detection of um, sources uh, who would, whose lives could, could be threatened, uh, they delete the names. Uh, that's fine. That's when acceptable. in
0: their judgment, that's
1: yeah. acceptable. But it's their, ju- yeah. the editor's judgment.
0: You How know. do you feel about that? You oh, that's fine. Word, that's you use the word before the profession, hmm. and I was going to interrupt and say, "What profession?" <laughs> you what mean profession in this day and age,
1: yeah. because we have citizen journalists and we have internet and we have bloggers and we no. have uh, this I'm whole a, new world.
0: No, on, on this program, it's my privilege to put words in my guest's <laughs> mouth, not the other way. No, I don't mean that, John. No. I mean very simply: at any time, uh, has it been? a profession.
1: Ah, newspaper uh, Yeah, I think you could make the case that it is, uh, that it was and is. Uh, interestingly enough, I mean, my father, I, it's not in the book, but I know uh, from my mother, he always called himself a reporter. He never called himself a journalist. What's the, he saw a distinction. Journalist was highfalutin. Uh, reporter was down to earth. Um, yeah, profession. Uh, but profession, meaning something, meaning a, a kind of a not just a job but a calling that that overtone of something special, that, a craft that you've developed and worked at, a set of values that you care about. Uh, all of that, I think, does apply to newspapering.
0: Doesn't it also mean a um, a uh, sort of an organizational? Stick here, uh, the medical profession, the legal profession, the engineering profession, you need to be licensed. What about oh, what about the fourth estate
1: uh, licensing would be the last thing I would want to see uh, yeah no i don 't in that sense of the word no i don 't see uh, I, I, yes, you can speak of the medical profession and the legal profession, which have these set requirements and even can uh, dictate the number of members that are allowed to join through one system or another. But it's not true of, of reporting. Uh, and the day we see licensing of reporters is the day democracy is dead.
0: I'm interested. You say not true of reporting. You didn't say not true of journalism. No, journalism... You don't see the difference. Or you see very I see, much of a I see.
1: I see a, a nuanced difference, yeah. Reporter to me is much more basic, uh, straightforward, and describes what you do uh, in that job. The trouble I always ran into was when I became an editor, I didn't want to say, well, now I'm an editor. I always wanted... So I, you wanted them? I began using the word journalist um, to describe my, what I do. Yeah. One of them.
0: <laughs> we have a minute and a half left. Uh, What do you think is going to happen, not in terms of the economics of the press, but what's going to happen to the journalists?
1: Well, the interesting thing about this point right now is journalism schools are filled with young people. uh, And there are even new ones cropping up all over the place. Uh, So they're being attracted to this field what are they all going to do? Where are the jobs going to be? I don't know, but they're going to be out in the market, and they'll probably create their own jobs. And they will go to the Internet. They'll start blogs. They'll do local reporting. Um, they'll live on salaries of twenty to 30000 a year if they're lucky. It'll be sort of like Grub Street all over again until finally somebody, it shakes down, somebody comes up with a business model that works in this new environment. Uh, starts hiring them up, you know. A new Adolf ox will come along. Uh, it's probably right now in, you know, CUNY graduate school uh, learning something, uh, learning the techniques. And it'll happen.
0: You know, it's not dead. I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> I don't know that I share it, but I want to thank you very much for joining me today, oh, John Donnelly. Thank you. It's good to be here. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as an old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash Open Mind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash Open Mind.